and welcome to the G Word. My name is Lara Nightingale and I'm an ethics lead here at Genomics England. Very simply, my job is to make sure that ethics is embedded into everything we do here at Gel. I'm a lawyer by training, specialising in human rights and health, which ultimately led me to clinical ethics and then to Genomics England and the amazing diverse data and cancer programmes we have going on. Hint, if you don't know much about these programmes, do go back and have a listen to some of the episodes from the amazing Diverse Data Takeover Week. My personal favourite is our designer, Sophia, chatting to her incredible Vietnamese family about some of the issues she is tackling in the programme so far. I'm joined today by the awesome Jessica Morley, a specialist in all things ethics and AI, but I'm going to let Jess introduce herself in more detail. Hi Jess, how are you? Hi Lyra, I'm good thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, very well. Welcome to the G Word. I'm especially interested to talk to you because we both have a background in ethics. So would you like to tell me a little bit about uh, what it is you do, what you're doing now, how you got into ethics? Yeah, sure. So I have, I mean, I guess fundamentally I'm a researcher at the University of Oxford and I have two different hats there. One hat is my job and I, I am employed at the policy lead in the data lab, which is in the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences, and that's run by Dr. Ben Goldacre. And my other hat is uh, at the Oxford Internet Institute, where I'm supervised by Professor Luciano Fiorini, and there my research is designing an algorithmically enhanced NHS. So I look at how do you deploy algorithmically driven clinical decision support software so effectively, in all of my research, I'm looking at how do we use better use big health data, I suppose, for the population of ind- for the population health and for health of individuals. And there's an enormous amount of ethical implications in in that, from right from well, do we does this end up in discrimination through to what does this mean for the nature of care that we deliver, particularly because this is it starts to intersect with technologies that fall under the heading of artificial intelligence and so I suppose I first became interested in that line of thinking six or so years ago when I was working as a civil servant in Department of Health and then in NHSX with um, Indra Joshi and we wrote the first version of the NHS code of conduct for data-driven health and care technologies and I think during that period of time, it just sort of dawned on me that there wasn't a significantly good enough understanding of the ethical implications of AI in healthcare through no one's fault, but it just it just wasn't there. Um, and that sort of drove me to go and start generating the knowledge myself. You have um, a really fascinating background in that area because I know that in that role you were sitting at um, meetings with people like Facebook and uh, Google is that right and listening to what they were saying they were capable of and 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 your understanding was quite different but perhaps the people you were surrounded by didn't didn't have the same knowledge as you did is is that right no that's absolutely right so I, I think there's always this dynamic between big tech and public services because they have to sort of coexist like the government does in fact need the help of big technology companies um often because government's job is not to produce technologies itself necessarily 
And so I did find myself in a couple of scenarios where, although I'm not a developer, I would never class myself as being a developer, I can write a line of code. No one would think it was pretty or efficient, but I at least know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so I, I sort of had an extra level of technical understanding. And I'd be in these meetings where I, you know, you would just see the two, the two parties, policymakers and tech, talking entirely different languages and not necessarily, therefore, agreeing on what was the art of the possible. And I was supposed to try and act as a mediator, but that did and did not work, depending on the situation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds almost funny, like trying to explain to your grandma um, how to use Facebook or something, um, but the modern day equivalent yes, of that. Yes. <laughs> So you've written quite extensively around uh, ethics in tech and AI and machine mm. learning and um, how we how we can translate these ethical principles that we've got into something a bit more practical. And that's why I started to get really interested in your work as an ethics lead, because one of the comments I get an awful lot is ethics is all well and good, but we can't sit around in this academic vacuum talking uh non-stop about these things so um what got you interested in 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 that area in practical applied ethics um i think for similar reasons to what you were just describing there really ethics has this i think it has a little bit of a bad reputation in some ways it's misrepresented yeah. in the media i think a lot so i think a lot of people think that ethics is sitting around in tweed jackets with elbow patches you know smoking a pipe and wondering about the meaning of life where whereas actually ethics is effectively a tool out what do we want what does a good life look like that's really what i think ethics is about and if you think about the interplay between the law and ethics, the law provides what you sh what you can do. So what can you legally do? Whereas ethics is there to help you decide what you should do in a different situation. So ethics is actually not a set idea. It's constantly moving um, because it's more responsive to social and cultural changes in, in the environment. And it's also faster paced because it's not set in law. Um, so it sort of helps you respond to these new challenges. The, the issue is that often ethics is really high level. So we will get, you know, you all have seen it. I'm sure Genomics England has one where there are like these codes of conduct, like I was saying about the NHS one or principles of practice or whatever that companies and governments and institutions will sign up to. And there'll be things like, well, the most famous one was Google's don't be evil um but there there are others that are sort of like make algorithms that are beneficent or non-maleficent or they protect they protect autonomy those are lovely and meaningful things to sign up to but if i am the developer uh so i'm the person writing code i've probably never sat in an ethics class in my life I might want to do good for society, but if I'm thinking about, oh, well, how am I going to write this function to do this specific thing inside my algorithm, or I'm training this to do this thing, it doesn't really mean anything to me to think, oh, how do I ensure that this algorithm protects the autonomy of the end user? And so I think I started to get interested in, well, this is a bit of a problem because we've got intense pressure from the top so intense pressure from governments in the UK and elsewhere to embed ethics in the design and the use of artificially intelligent technologies or anything that's data driven 
And yet at the same time, we don't necessarily know how that would actually work. So I think it was that answer, trying to answer that question was what really interested me. Yeah, I I completely agree with you on so many points you've raised there. So as you know, my background is as a lawyer and what got me interested in ethics was this gap uh, between what's prescribed, what we must do, and then the gap about what we actually should do. Um, And I think, I mean, I know you've mentioned it in one of your papers that uh, the the gap between theory and practice is similar um, in bioethics and AI and that we need to try and find a way to translate this across. And we're saturated with guides. I I know you said, I think in your research, you say that in 2019, there were more than 80 AI guides in the public domain um, in terms of ethics. And again, um, yeah, in genomics, we have the same issue where we've got these core principles the typical bioethics principles, but also the um, increasingly um, built upon to try and uh, make them more appropriate. But what does that actually mean? And how do we embed ethics into our organisation? So I know you talk a little bit about wanting to design things pro-ethically or you have a concept of ethics as a service so that ethics isn't just this thing that happens at the very beginning or the very end or a tick box for example and I was really interested when I read the kind of reflective development process do you have any ideas about what that might look like in practice in AI? Mm. Yeah so there's I mean there's a lot in there so yeah there's a huge number of these ethical guides and that that number has probably gone up now it comes from AI Ethics Watch which is a great website if you if you ever want to check it out and I suppose ethics as a service does come from this idea of, like I said, pro-ethical design, which which is um, Luciano's original idea, and it's the difference between pro-ethical design and ethics by design. So you often hear in privacy, for example, you'll hear privacy by design, which is the idea that you design every single element, whatever it is you are doing, um, in a very set and structured way in order to produce the most privacy-preserving outcome. And the issue with that type of approach, that very set rule-based approach, it doesn't allow for contextual flexibility. Um, and in ethics, contextual flexibility is really important because often different societies, different cultures, different groups of society, whatever you want to say, have different opinions and they interpret things in different ways. And actually to impose one definition or one set of ethical rules across the whole population, even in a country, but especially between countries, can actually be ethically really really harmful. So pro-ethical design is, in fact, about helping people make the right decision in the context. Um, So the example that we've used a few times is the difference between a speed bump and a speed camera. So a speed bump is ethics by design. It's going to affect everyone, even if you're an ambulance. Um, A speed camera is pro-ethical design. Everyone knows it's there. It's there to help you make the right decision. But if I'm an ambulance, then I can ignore it. Um, And so with ethics as a service, we were trying to build on, on this idea that you've got principles that are too high level. They're not really that useful to people, but you're at the other end of the extreme. You've got design guides or technical languages or whatever you want to call them, Python libraries, that can be too restrictive. Um, and so with ethics as a service, we were trying to provide the Goldilocks in between those two things, yeah. you know, not too hot, not too cold. That's right. So I think how it works in practice was this idea that you have a range of tools 
a guide of what you want the outcomes of your products to be and then you will have a set mechanism for working out which of those principles or tools or whatever are the most appropriate in the most most in that particular scenario have a form of external auditing that would check whether those things were actually working in practice. You've raised so many interesting points there, but one of the things I'm especially interested in from a genomics point of view is the idea of how do you design something that's suitable for all sorts of different communities and not use a one uh, size fits all approach. In your papers, you talk a little bit about value pluralism. Could you just say a sentence about what that means for our listeners? Yeah, of course. So value pluralism is a bit like I just said, so not everyone has the same understanding of even a certain value. So not everyone will have the same values. Um, values might be things like fairness, for example. But even within the values that we do agree on, different groups and different societies will have different definitions of, of what that means. Even when we're trying to design in this in this way, it's a really important question, whose value should we be considering before we even get to the value pluralism? So whose values are most important? So for example, at Genomics England, should we be considering the values of the state, uh, the values of uh, Genomics England itself? Should we be considering the values of the NHS or our participants? Um, or perhaps the implications for people who aren't getting sequenced? And, I, and at the moment, um, I know you're having similar discussions in tech around whose values are most important. Have you had any ideas about how you could begin to solve that problem? There are definitely ways of tackling it. And I think Genomics England and its intersection with the NHS is a really good example to talk about here because the NHS's main core value is we are for everyone. Right. So that, yeah. that is that is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to provide an equal service to everyone, um, regardless of background, regardless of whatever. But you right there in that exact definition, you have run straight into the value issue because different people define health in wildly different ways. Um, so are we yeah. talking about health as just the absence of illness or are we talking about the concept of wellness and well-being and these things really matter because if things like in genomics if you are taking this purely on a definition of the absence of disease maybe the only thing that does matter is and your ability to predict disease but if you are talking about someone's ability to stay well and stay happy in themselves you're also talking about things like um, the social determinants of health and whether people feel comfortable and secure in their lives or their jobs and what they eat etc so it's really it sounds really trite but the best way of avoiding those issues and making sure that you are putting the values in is talk to the real like who are you designing the services for they should be involved at every step of the way um they should be involved from the business case of what it is you're doing right through to when something is deployed and crucially when something is live you must have a mechanism for those people to report back any negative consequences and the company in question whether it be gel whether it be us whether it be anybody is willing to turn it off okay this is not working off because if you don't have that 
the unintended consequences will just run run wild. And so as boring as that might be, talk to people and design with the people that you're trying to dis- to serve is really the only way of tackling this kind of complexities. Yeah, and I don't think that's boring at all. And I'm especially interested in your point about essentially a feedback loop. Of how do we know what we're doing? Because I think all too often, and we see it in uh, tech an awful lot is that algorithms or whatever it might be gets designed but there's no feedback loop so transparency issues aside how do we know if this is working and I think the same goes in genomics how can how can we stay very very receptive to the real world impact of what we're doing here I was just I was just going to say it, fe- it feeds into everything like you know if we're talking about whether we're talking about health data whether we're talking about genomic data or even things like how you present the results to an individual is an ethical decision-making point. And the way in which you present the results and the way in which you talk to people about the results and the implications of that and how they deal with that knowledge and guiding people to, to help themselves understand what those implications are is, is an ethical decision and design point. And, and that's often ignored, I think. It's, a, it's like um, not, it's not really necessarily Jess, you were raising so many points that I could talk to you about all day. And one of them is the definition of health and how wildly different that can be and what that means to different people. And when I'm thinking about that, I'm often I often find myself thinking about who values do we prioritize because the fact that I am even working for Genomics England or in the healthcare sphere means that I automatically value a certain model of what health means. Now as someone I formerly worked in human rights law so I often find myself thinking about concepts of autonomy. One of the things I'm thinking about a lot is the right of people to not want to engage with this technology at all and my willingness to engage with them to ensure that the things I design are fair versus my need to let them be um, to not impose myself on them and to know that actually their decision is on the basis of a lot of harm that has gone before and, and so trying to balance the, those two tensions. And I wonder if you come across similar things in AI where people have been really harmed in the past by this technology. They don't want to engage. But if you don't engage with them, you risk further missingness or, or bias. Have you come across that at all? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a huge topic and we're sort of starting to venture into the world of meta-ethics and this idea that you have the right not to know. Um, so in both fields, in in you know in genomics and in AI, we are really talking about almost from birth. What what are the things that are gonna are gonna happen to you? But the the problem with that is that starts to narrow the definition of what counts when we're defining somebody's health status, and we're making it very quantitative. So it's based purely on things that are are measurable. Um, AI, what we have said before, has no semantic understanding. So, you know, we know qualitatively that somebody's will to live or how they feel in themselves and all of these sort of more social and soft concepts have just as much of an impact 
on somebody's health outcomes as the measurable thing. But algorithms in general are not great at understanding that softer side of things. And there are definitely people and more people who've been harmed by this type of thing in the past because you can go back and you can look at things like colonialism. And this was effectively us going in the West and the UK, unfortunately, hugely going out and saying, well, your branch of medicine, where you you do all of these things and they're often based on feelings and things like meditation or whatever, they don't count. Only our version of medicine and our version of health counts. And that's incredibly harmful because it starts to undermine that process of your feeling of self and your sense of self and your own understanding. And you can start to create this this sort of scenario in which people feel disengaged from their understanding of their own physical self to their algorithmic self, their data self, and the decisions that are being made about them. Um, And regardless of how well people try, the history and the dark history of medicine and like a lot of these things and systemic racism or systemic bias are all built into that process so we are probably unless we proactively try and tackle it always going to harm the people who've already been harmed before in a worse way yeah Jess I couldn't agree more with you on that and I was actually writing about this last night this idea that although I may consider myself to be well-meaning because as part of my diverse, I say my, as part of Genomics England's diverse data program, we want to ensure genomic uh, medicine works for everyone. And by everyone, we mean everyone. But in doing that, we're automatically taking an ever a, a slightly supremacist or colonialist view of you need this medicine. I think you need this technology and therefore I am going to find a way to make you engage with it, which again carries all those um those hideous connotations from the past and, and a, a whole new kind of harm. Well, well, not even a new kind of harm. We're perpetuating a, a historical harm. And, and how do we not do that? Whilst at the same time, making sure that everyone who wants this technology can access it. It's an absolute minefield. And like you have quite rightly said, I think it's one that can only be answered um, when we have everyone in the room who's going to be impacted by this technology. So... If it is as simple as getting people in the room and consulting them the whole way through, why aren't we doing this? Why hasn't this happened? Fantastic question. <laughs> there are so many layers to it. <laughs> uh, I think for, for the first one is that it's not simple. And yeah. it's, it's actually really difficult to do it well. Um, often you'll see engagement programs and I, I am definitely n- not like a, a world leading expert on how to do it well I just know how to not do it badly um, <laughs> yeah. but you, you yeah like you will often you will often see uh, researchers for example approaching this in a really closed manner so they will ask closed questions do you do you not agree with me using your data for this one specific thing? And often you ask it in a way that makes it very clear what the researcher or who the policymaker wants the answer to be. Um, and most people are to a degree rational, right? So if you say to them, I would like to use your data because you have a have family history of cancer, I want to solve cancer, can I use your data? Most people not necessarily have the the 
understanding or the, the whatever to understand that and they would just say yes I am normally talking about people who are like myself you know I am white I'm middle class I'm female I'm cisgendered what, what um all of these things and so I have no reason to fear the medical system no reason to be suspicious when someone comes comes and asks me that people um, in different categories, particularly people from ethnic minority groups or different ethnicities, have huge amounts of baggage um, when it comes to this, and rightly so. And this causes problems on both sides because it makes researchers who are often, unfortunately, like me or male, pale and stale, it makes them really nervous because they don't necessarily want to go and engage these groups and they don't know how. It makes the other side not want to engage. So there's that side of things. There's also more practical things because the people who are the least left out of these types of technologies or the most left out of these types of technologies are most left out because they're not engaging with the healthcare system to start with. Um, so how do we find yeah. them and how do we approach them in a way that is non-threatening is appropriate for the situation and is makes things actually accessible and then we're talking about all sorts of accessible things you know i think actually in some bizarre ways covid has potentially been quite good for this because it has forced people to start thinking about alternative ways of people whether it be online um but we, we there are all of these things and then i think ultimately um unfortunately i sometimes think there's a little bit of a degree of arrogance that comes that comes with it there's a oh well I know what I'm doing I I am the clinician or I'm the the data scientist or whatever and I'm designing a completely omnipresent or omnipotent algorithm that's going to be better than a human doctor and it won't have any bias and I don't need to talk to anyone because I know what I'm doing and they just dismiss the softer side um, of of science and that's wrong but it does happen yeah, and I'm, I've seen it. You've seen it. I'm sure uh, many of us have seen it and also contributed to it. I'm like you, I'm white, cisgendered, um, able-bodied, and I am sure, well, for a start, quite often I don't have a clue what I'm doing, <laughs> which again is why it's important to engage the people uh, with the lived experience of, of this problem. Um, but a couple of things there that you've mentioned in terms of that dynamic I don't have a reason, apart from women's health, like you said, which is a whole other podcast, uh, to distrust the medical service. So I'm generally quite trusting with my data, although it uh, depends on the context, obviously. One of the things I think about when I'm I'm looking at, it's not even value pluralism, but when I'm thinking about how we can design this is how do I, oh. how do I obtain a, a culturally informed consent or a, or a properly informed consent that takes ac account of the harms people have experienced um, at the hands of the health system. And the second of all, the things I think about a lot is um, how do I approach these uh, groups that I really would like to engage in, in a way uh, that lets them know that their data is missing, but doesn't make them feel responsible for that that the reason they've not engaged is not their fault and the reason that we don't have their data is certainly not their fault um it's it's ours we broke that trust so how do we have those conversations whilst acknowledging that um that it's not 
it's not the, that person's duty to come forward and get sequenced. It's 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 not up to them to repair this damage. It's something that we need to do and need to think about. So just a few things that go around in my head when I'm thinking about the ethics of our programs here at Genomics England. And one of the things I really wanted to pick up on what you're saying is this idea of health inequity and measurable outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's especially important in, when we're talking about whole genome sequencing. So if we are looking uh, for susceptibility for a particular disease, perhaps a genetic link between the way a disease presents itself, we absolutely must not do this in a vacuum that does not take into account um, massive uh, social deprivation uh, disparities. And so that's another thing that I'm thinking about an awful lot is how do we, how do we look at this in a way that takes a complete view because although there might be genetic causation that we need to look at we cannot do that in the absence of of social factors as well whose job do you think it is to be doing this like who should be having these conversations and where does this responsibility lie is it is it with the ceos is it with um the ethicists is it with the designers uh so the banal answer is it should be everyone's responsibility um, because yeah. you are making those decisions all the time. Uh, the, the more realistic argument is that we need the chief execs or whoever it is at the top to ultimately be the owner of the responsibility because they are the people who sign off on the additional costs. Stuff, stuff, um, and you know we we can't we can't be ignorant of, of the fact that designing in a pro-ethical way and running all these, these types of engagement programs and monitoring things is expensive. It is easier and more cheaper to not worry about it. Um, the only argument that you can come up with against that often is reputational damage. If something bad happened, you'd get a negative back on the public. But you haven't, we haven't necessarily seen that type of dynamic play out in real life yet, um, mostly because there's not enough of a sophisticated public conversation around, around these issues. Um, so because the chief execs or whoever are signing their checks, they have got to f at least feel ownership for it so that they can give permission to all of the people working beneath them for want of a better phrase in order to actually act on 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 these things because otherwise what you see happen is ethicists or designers and again it's often people of color who will take on the responsibility themselves and feel like it's their responsibility to shout about these types of things but they'll be scared because they are worried about um retaliation and we we have seen that play out you know, you look at Tim yeah. in, in in Google. Like we, we've seen it happen in real time, and it's a massive, massive problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it, you've touched on it there a little bit, but uh, what do you think the the risk or the harms are of not doing this? So I know you've talked a little bit about um, the ethical mistakes outweighing the benefit of an ethical success. Um, you've mentioned reputation, but could you say a little bit more about? Why? Why must we do this? Must we do this? Um, I think ultimately, why must we do this is opportunity cost. Like as as um, 
a nation or as a, actually as a global society, but particularly, particularly if, we're talk, if we're talking from a really high level perspective, a human rights perspective, your perspective, you know, everyone has the right to life. So if you, if you look at that, that actually starts implying a responsibility and a duty of healthcare providers to invest in any technology or anything that could save lives. They have, they have a, an, a legal and an ethical duty to do that. And we definitely do in the NHS because we're a state-based system. Um, now we know that all of these types of technologies that we sort of brief, briefly touched on in this conversation do have the potential to have hugely beneficial implications for people's health. Um, we know that preventative and predictive and proactive care is better than than trying to treat people once they're sick. Um, but if we do it badly in the first few waves of this, you will get what's called a chilling effect. So the public will go, no, I don't want to engage with this. It's too harmful. I've seen bad things happen. I've been blamed for my own health care because I, I was told that I am at risk of obesity and the complexities that come with that. So I was told it was my responsibility to exercise and eat fruit, but I can't do that because I don't have enough money. Um, and I stuck in a high rise flat and I just have no access to any of these facilities that you think I need. So why am I being blamed for this risk? Um, we'll get the chilling effect. And as a result of that, you would start to lose investment in the technologies. You'd start to lose political will to want to invest in those types of technologies and you would have a massive opportunity cost that would come as that and at that point you have undermined this idea of everyone's right to life because you haven't invested in the technology that could have saved their life yeah and again another really interesting point there and we've actually uh discussed separately potentially writing about mm. this and and the burden of uh, personalized medicine what what that means when you place the responsibility for someone's health entirely on them um, so again I think the topic of a whole other podcast and something I'm super interested in but another thing you mentioned there that I want to to pick up on is um, that the tech itself being good or bad versus the the people who who design it and Something I found really interesting in one of your papers was when you talk about the idea of um, this implication that AI systems or tech could almost be independent moral agents. So we hear Bojo referring to um, rogue algorithms or bad algorithms, and it's the same with um, perhaps genomic technologies. Now, there's a whole load of writing out there about whether uh, tech could be animate, and, and we won't go into that in too much detail now but could you just say a little bit about your stance on that yeah um well i think my meta stance is i don't believe in the singularity we are we, i don't think we should be aiming for agi um but uh i think when i'm um, talking about autonomous moral agencies is there's often, and you see it a lot in medicine, um, where people push the idea that because a computer has no feelings, it is somehow able to be more objective. And you have that meshed with this discussion that often happens with, oh, we don't understand how algorithms are making decisions and there's, there's a lack of transparency, which is true, but... That is also a design decision. Um, and so you sort yeah. of start to perpetuate this myth 
in the media, like with Bojo that you mentioned, um, that it's the algorithm's fault. Somehow it was a bad decision and it was a bad algorithm. No, it was a badly designed algorithm. You didn't validate yeah. it. You, you didn't think about the implications of your inputs and your outputs. You didn't test it in different environments. Like All of those things sit with the designer not with the algorithm. The algorithm is like saying if somebody, a good example of this, when I was six, I fell off a wall and I took all of the skin right down to my shin bone on my leg. Um, now, oh. my dad's reaction to this was to knock down the wall because he was cross at the wall. <laughs> like, it wasn't the wall's fault that I was dancing along the wall. So it's that is the exact <laughs> exact argument that's being made yeah. when people say it was a bad algorithm. It was the wall's fault that you fell off it. No, it wasn't. I was being an idiot. Yeah. I didn't design make a good design decision, right? Yeah. So Jess, I've kept you now for uh, quite a quite a while. Um, so I will let you go. Um, I'll probably shortly be begging you for further advice on how we can ensure ethical design here at Gel. But thank you very, very much for your time. And I look forward to seeing what you do next, especially around this this burden of precision medicine. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me and for this really fun conversation. And hopefully it will continue. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, and I really hope you do because it's just so fascinating. And if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. I'm Lara Nightingale, and I hope to see you again in another episode of The G Word. Bye.